for the first time here in 2024, we got a full crew for Behind the Yellow Line, the Chicago Cubs podcast. We got Jeremy, we got Randall. The last time the three of us were together was right before the winter meetings. And we vowed when the Cubs finally did something, we'd get back together and do a show. And as we know, the Cubs really didn't do anything for a month or so. A week ago, they go out and get one of the top free agent pitchers available. Jeremy was ready, Randall was ready. I got COVID, so I missed the show last week. Apologies for that, guys. I'd say I'm at about 90% right now, but it's good to be back with you both. And on this cold January night, it's nice to be talking Cubs baseball with you guys. Yeah, you actually sound pretty good to me. Like, I was expecting a little bit on the comeback, but you you sound pretty clear to me. So I'm glad to see see you're feeling better, glad to hear you're feeling better, Uh, and, and glad that the Cubs actually had moves to talk about so we could talk about them. Yeah, you good to see you're about ready to come off the COVID IL, something that uh, I hope we don't see in MLB again anytime soon, and good to be back together with all three of us. Absolutely. Um, I did not get a chance to talk about the new Cubs starting pitcher, so I've got some thoughts on that. It's been another week or so. We've got a number for the new Cubs starter, so lots to talk about on that front. Um, Cubs also making a big trade with the Los Angeles Dodgers. We'll talk about who they got, who they gave up. The Cubs convention was last week. Um, One of the benefits of me having COVID and having access to Fubo right now is I was sick as hell last week, and I had access to watch the Cubs convention. So I got some thoughts on what went down there, uh, including two of our favorites. It's Kerry Wood and Aramis Ramirez going to the Cubs Hall of Fame. We certainly have some thoughts on that. And then some other headlines from across Major League Baseball here as we get ready to get into the show. Um, but we're another week in here. You guys had a chance last time to talk at length about the new Cubs starter. Um, with a little bit more time for this to settle in, are we still feeling really optimistic about the new Cubs left-hander? Yeah, you know, I'm, he certainly didn't say or do anything. In his introductory press conference, that would turn me away. And I have to say, he and whoever at Octagon, uh, his representation, which, by the way, Jeremy does have an office on Michigan Avenue in downtown Chicago, so big factor in him setting up shop here. Whoever at his agency prepared him for that press conference, I just want to say, A-plus job, his first words in any language to the Chicago media, lyrics of Go Cubs Go, uh, talking about Ben Zobrist and reaching out to him to whatever extent that actually happened. Uh, about wearing number 18. Whoever prepared him for that press conference, A+, plus, highest marks, 10 out of 10, couldn't have done a better job. Yeah, I mean, uh, Octagon is Zobra's uh, agent as well, and he said that it came through the agency that they contacted him. That uh, They said, hey, he wants to wear number 18. He was looking through the history. But uh, I, I'm still optimistic about it. I, as I said last week, I he was pretty much the starter I wanted that was on the market. He was the guy I was personally focused on. Uh, I thought that he was going to be, I I still think he's going to be a good signing. I think the deal they got is fantastic. And I think, you know, this week, Dan Zimborski on Fangrass posted the Cubs Zips projections. He projects, doesn't have the most innings, but per inning, he projects as the Cubs best starter right now. It's him (laughs) and Justin Steele uh, who both project, I think in the top 20 in the, uh, in the baseball of being uh, starters. So like, obviously the numbers like him, I know there's some other things, but I I think he's a fantastic signing. I think I personally believe we're going to be really happy with him. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how council uses him because I don't, I do think there's going to be times where he's like used in different ways just because of that adjustment period from uh, Japan, the fact that like maybe he comes out of the bullpen a little bit, try to get some of these starters in. So I just think it's going to be very fascinating to see how he pitches. 
Jeremy, I was incredibly remiss that I ended last week's show without bringing this up because it came to me mid-show. And as things come to me mid-show, sometimes they don't always stay with me mid-show. Uh, early going in the MLB season, you have a, a fair number of off days. Teams will often break camp only with four starting pitchers, and they'll add that fifth one in May as the off days start to thin out. I wonder if that is going to affect the roster construction, if they will name a designated fifth starter early on and keep that fifth starter. And when you have that ability to go with only four starters for a week or two weeks at a time, if Imanaga might be that skipped guy for that very reason to try and ease him into the higher MLB workload. So that came to me last week. I didn't get a chance to bring it up, but it came to me after the fact. Like you said, they're going to probably be creative with him, at least in the early going. They are going to want to bring him along slowly. The last thing you're going to want to do is overwork your investment as he adjusts to a new throwing environment. Jeremy, did you say a minute ago you wouldn't be surprised if he's coming out of the bullpen? At some points this season, mm -hmm. I think, yeah, because I think, uh, I think as Randall just mentioned, he, he, look, he's coming from Japan, right? And Japan, they throw every six days. They have this, they have a completely different, it's a completely different ball. It's, it's going to be a huge adjustment for him to work. And I just, I think there's just going to be some time. There might be some points this season where you might want to use him in a way, but you may not be wanting him to get like a full start. And so I, I just think like, Hey, maybe there's like an opportunity here where there's some, you know, opportunity. I just think Craig council is going to be very creative in the way he, hmm. he uses but him. I think he's gonna be creative in the way he uses Hayden Wesneski. I think he's be creative in the way I think, I think we're going to have a very creative, uh, season this year when it comes to starting pitching. I don't think there's too many guys where we're just going to like throw them up and have a, they're going to be starters every fifth day. I don't know if that's true in baseball anymore. Like nobody throws 200 innings anymore. So like right. you know, if you're steel, probably Hendricks, but I just think everybody else on this is just going to be like a very creative usage. And for Shota, he's never thrown more than 170 innings in a season. And that was the high point in Japan. I mean, for the most part, he was 140 to 150 or so in a given season. Um, I thought you guys did a fantastic job last week. I listened to the show with about 102 degree fever. I was laying in bed, hallucinating, listening to Jeremy and Randall talk about it. But I've got a criticism for my co-host, something that I want to counter a little bit today. Um, when I listen to podcasts, one of the things that I like is some tension. I like disagreements. I like some dissenting thoughts getting out there. And I felt listening to the show last week, you guys love the picture. You love the contract. Everybody's hugging and loving each other. So what I'm going to do is try and disrupt that a little bit with the show here this week, because I do have some concerns about him. Um, also, before we break today, I've got a segment that I want us to do. I haven't really told you guys about this that will definitely lead to some um, tension between co-hosts here. So we're going to end with that. So if you're listening to this show, you're going to want to stick around for the end. It's going to get fun here. Um, I got some uh, trick up my sleeve, so to speak. Um, Randall, you got something to say here before I... Yeah, I was... Go I was going to ask, do, do we sound better when you listen with 102 degree fever? Is it like a, is it like beer goggles or I guess beer headphones? Uh, does that does that improve your listening at all? Well, it adds colors to the listening for sure. Um, as I was <laughs> laying there, the, the whole room was spinning and all that. Um, my second bout with COVID too, and I can say unequivocally worse than the first time for wow. whatever reason. It just hit me a lot harder this time through. Um, but one of the things that I am concerned about is, and Jeremy, this is something you've talked about for years when we talked about players coming over from other leagues, is you really got to be careful about looking at stats in a place like Japan or Korea and then applying it to Major League Baseball because it really doesn't work that way. So if you're praising this guy, you look at the high strikeouts, the low walks, and you go, well, that's really encouraging. What I'm worried about with him are the home runs, right? Last season, 160 innings in Japan, 
24 home runs surrendered. Now, what worries me about that is one, the hitters in America are obviously a lot better than the hitters in Japan. And you've got less room for error against players in Major League Baseball versus Japan. You know what Wrigley Field can be like, especially in summer when that wind's blowing out. This is a valid concern here, right? Like if we're going to talk up the strikeouts and we're going to talk up the low walks, you can't ignore that he gave up a ton of home runs in Japan. And that is obviously a weakness maybe in his game coming over to the United States. Are you worried about that? Are you worried about the high home run total in Japan? I agree with you. I think it's a valid concern. I, I We did mention it a little bit. Uh, um, last time I, I did mention also that, you know, it doesn't blow out as Wrigley as, as much as we, we think of it does. But, uh, uh, as I did mention before this Lance, Lance Brozdowski, uh, of marquee and some other things, he put together a great video that delves with a lot of different concerns, not an overly positive video, but a pretty positive video. I, I showed him not, and he talked about this, uh, uh, the fact that Shota did give up a lot of home runs over in Japan and, and he gave up and you look at his numbers. Uh, like he, I think he has like an eight percent home run to fly ball ratio, which if you think about it, then America it's usually about eleven percent. That's pretty low, but in Japan they don't hit as much home runs. That's actually a huge number over. It's in a Japan. lot less slugging in NPC. Yeah, so it's actually a pretty big number. But he compared him to similar pitches, pitchers, excuse me, uh, in America, and two of them were Nestor Cortez and um, uh, Vesia, Alex Vesia, the relief pitcher for the Dodgers. Were, the two most similar pitchers kind of who have like his similar fastball and, and uh, pitched arm angle and stuff uh, and showed it. I mean, he pitched a lot more down than those guys did and they pitched more high up. So he thought maybe there are ways that like his pitch selection in terms of location, which is a strength of his supposedly is his command uh, that, that, that was kind of running into trouble. So yeah, I agree with you. I think it's a valid concern. I, I assume that it's something that the Cubs are very concerned about. Like, you know, you can't just put a guy in Wrigley. You want him, you want to use the defense, right? There's a reason they have Dansby Swanson and Nico Horner and whoever's going to be playing center field is going to be a fantastic center fielder this year uh, defensively, most likely. Uh, so like you want the ball, up the middle, you want to use those defense defenders, but uh, yeah, I, I agree. I I I'm always skeptical of guys coming to, from Japan, uh, other leagues that are not major league baseball because it's not major league baseball. I'm always skeptical of that, but I I was gung ho about him because he was the guy I wanted, and we saw him at the WBC. He had the highest stuff plus at WC. Like I'm almost mm-hmm. ignoring his Japan numbers, just focusing on what he did at the World Baseball Classic because that was with the major league baseball. That was against he started against the U.S. team. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I do think there's valid concerns. I'm not going to, I don't want to see, I don't think he's going to be a number one starter. Um, but I, I just was really excited cause he was the guy I, I had pegged that I wanted. Yeah, it is a valid concern. We know that Wrigley can be a very difficult place to pitch in the summer, but as Jeremy did point out, uh, summer, those days can often take all the way till sometimes mid-June, 4th of July to really kick in. And Ronan, as you know, you've been to some very cold, very raw, very windy games in April and May. It plays a very different ballpark uh, when the wind is not howling out. So between that, between we know that Jed is methodical, sometimes to a fault in signing guys. If there's any reason to be scared away, he will often say, you know, maybe this isn't the player for us. So I have some confidence that Jed has had the staff scout Imanaga extensively. We know that Jed uh, actually made a trip to Japan to at least be closer seeing him in person. Uh, And we know what this team has at least tried to do with pitching infrastructure. I have enough confidence that they believe that it is something that can be worked on, something that can be fixed, something that they can hopefully minimize. But like you said, it is a valid concern. Like I said, there is a lot more slugging in MLB compared to NBB. It is the kind of thing that could blow up if things really go south. But 
if he does maintain that high home run rate, but succeeds in keeping guys off base, a solo home run or two yeah. is not going to kill you, especially if the Cubs are able to put together an offense that uh, is not going to be held down most days. So it is a concern, but I think there are ways to mitigate that concern. And I have to imagine that the Cubs already have, you know, a binder full of ways to work on mitigating that. I was reading too, that, uh, that ballpark that he played at in Japan, Yokohama is one of the more hitter friendly parks in Japan for what it's worth, right? We've already talked about the fact that slugging is down there compared to the United States. And obviously the talent level is down compared to the major leagues, but maybe that was part of it as well. But I like that point there, Randall, if he's not walking guys, if guys aren't on base, you can get away with that solo home run. It's that combination of walking two or three guys followed by the home run. That's what really gets guys in trouble. And I got some dimensions for you for his former home ballpark. He played at the uh, aptly named Yokohama Stadium, of course, home to the Yokohama Dana Bay Stars. Some dimensions for you uh, to the two corners down the left field and right field line. It is 308.4 feet to the alleys. It's 366, only 387 to dead center. So that is a fairly small ballpark. I'm not going to claim I know enough about the, uh, the climate in uh, Yokohama where he played to know what the prevailing winds and the conditions are like there, but just on dimensions alone, that is a fairly small ballpark. Right. Elevation. Yeah. Ooh, that's a good point. That is a I'm good curious point. Curious about you that. Know, that, okay, that. Yeah, go ahead, in... Jeremy. No, yeah, I was just gonna say, but uh, with the elevation, I, I think that's a good point you brought up because Japan, you know, has mountains. I don't know exactly where all, I'm not super familiar with the geography, but I I do know they have mountains over in Japan. Uh, I was just gonna say, like, the thing that interests me is comparing to who he was in Japan and who he was at the world baseball classic. Now there, cause he was kind of different pitcher. Like he was throwing 94 at the world baseball classic. And, and, and last year, Japan, his velocity was up a little bit, but it was more like 91, you know, possibly 92. So like, I don't know if that's just cause he was like amped for the world baseball classic or he was using the major league baseball. Cause in Japan, they have a different ball and that pre-tech ball. And a lot of guys like the pre-tech ball more than they like the baseball. So it's interesting that he had like better stuff with the American ball almost. Uh, but like, that's what I'm interested in. Like, are the, do the Cubs think they're signing the guy who was throwing 94, you know, striking out Paul Goldschmidt at the world baseball classic, or do they think they're getting the guy who should be a solid pitcher from Japan, you know, who's throwing 91, 92. Like, so that's what I'm curious about because he had the highest stuff plus at the world baseball classic, which was higher than Yamamoto, higher than Otani, higher than other American pitchers or major league baseball pitchers. So like that, that's what intrigued me. Uh, so Yokohama's recorded uh, height above sea level is all of 16 feet. So not quite oh the mile God. high, <laughs> not quite the mile high city. Uh, but Jeremy, to your point, again, we know how methodical this front office is. Uh, they, you know, if we know it, chances are they know it that Imanaga was pitching in shorter stints at the WBC that the stuff was playing up. Uh, you know, uh, you asked, are they getting the guy who? you know, averages 92 as a starter or the guy who was throwing 94 and a little bit higher in the shorter stints. I have to imagine they think they're maybe getting a guy kind of in between that maybe there's another half tick or even a, a full tick. It's a very scientific measurement on the fastball that they might be able to unlock. But I have to imagine they know that the stuff was really playing up in the shorter stints at the WBC. I can't imagine they think that they're getting a guy who's going to sit 94 the entire start. Yeah. The other thing... Oh, go ahead, Jeremy. No, I just was thinking, you know, because we mentioned it last week, but uh, I, I just I kind of go back to the fact that, you know, the championship game 
who did yeah. Japan put out there? They put out Imanaga. They didn't put out Sasaki, the fireballing youngster. They didn't put out Yamamoto, the guy getting $300 million. They didn't put out Otani. They used him at the end of the game. They, I mean, I know he only pitched a couple innings because they were on an innings limit, but they wanted Imanaga to start against the U.S. team. Yeah. And, and don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm very optimistic about this signing. I think it's a great team-friendly deal. Um, Jeremy, I think you mentioned this on the show last week. I mean, right now, if you look at last year's starting rotation to this year, the subtraction is Marcus Stroman. The addition is Shota. Um, I think he's going to outperform Stroman from last year. Stroman last year was about a two and a half four pitcher in about 140 innings for the Cubs. And it was top heavy, really good first half of the season. Not so good when he came back from injury and was really just sort of a mess there in September. I think he's going to outperform that. So for me, it's a net positive from last year to this season. Um, the other thing that I'm a little bit worried about, though, is the shoulder. We know he had season-ending shoulder surgery about four years ago after the 2020 season. There was a report around Christmas time out of Japan that I saw one or two headlines. I didn't see much else about it, that some American teams were concerned about that shoulder. So that got me thinking, okay, he clearly has a team-friendly deal here. I thought he'd get a lot more money in the open market. Is there some worry here with my co-hosts about that shoulder and that maybe that's the reason the Cubs got such a team-friendly deal? I, I I do have a little bit of worry that they're worried that there's something, uh, you know, the shoulder was not something I actually was like specifically onto till after he signed. Cause it was kind of like, especially when it came out that like, Oh, he's only guaranteed two thirty or whatever, which was the first kind of report, like two years at 15 million a year. It was like, okay, that's kind of low. Like what's going on here. But now we really know that it's pretty much like, it's kind of a complicated deal, but there's all these options. Uh, I do feel like there's probably something that the Cubs are trying to protect themselves from, right? Like, obviously, I don't think they – I think they felt really committed in giving him all this money. They would be doing it. Um, of course, Jed loves a good deal. We know Jed loves a good deal. He wants guys on his on – his, the best deal he can get them. But, uh, he loves couponing. Yeah. So, like, $80 million, though, that's kind of in the range where we probably thought if he gets the full contract. That's probably in the range where we probably thought at the start of the offseason – Imanaga was probably going to go to. Then it kind of got crazy that he was going to get over a hundred million, and he didn't get that far. But like fifty-three with the possibility to turn to eighty, like that, it's weird because you want it to be like a good deal for the Cubs. You don't want it to be a huge number, but you also don't want it to be like a low number. You're like, wow, why is he so cheap? Why did nobody else want him? So like that's it's mm-hmm. kind of like this weird middle. And I kind of feel like, you know, if if you if you get him on that. Four, 580 that's kind of feels fair if he pitches well so like obviously they want some sort of protection so there is something that does worry me about it yeah i think any pitching contract you're trying to protect yourself because the human arm is not meant to pitch we know this we know that the the curse of the pitcher is to experience elbow and forearm and shoulder and goodness knows what else is in there uh injuries and soreness and all manner of things so i think any pitching contract you're trying to protect yourself which is why 300 million for Yoshinobu Yamamoto is that's a big investment because if there's any if there's any problem with that you are paying a lot of money for uh, a guy who you you don't know how the arm is going to come back. Uh, Shohei Otani's contract has a lot of that same risk. You are paying seven hundred million dollars, not all at once. We know there's a lot of deferrals there, but you're paying a lot of money for a guy you're hoping can come back from his second Tommy John surgery. If there's one guy that I believe could do that and maybe be better. It's probably Shohei Otani, but any pitching contract, I think you're trying to protect yourself. I did not see shoulder issues as being a big thing with Imanaga. We know that he was the hot name in the week prior 
to him signing that the Giants and Angels were in and out, that any other number of teams were in and out. And I did not see it coming up as a big thing. We know he had the issue in 2020. I had not seen it being a recent thing. Uh, but yeah, again, we're talking about the meticulousness of this front office and the protection. I have to imagine that in any pitching contract, you're trying to protect yourself because a guy's a guy's shoulder could explode tomorrow. And that's just the curse of the pitcher. I don't know that it represents any inherent heightened risk or any heightened risk other than the inherent risk of signing a pitcher for any reason. Yeah. I mean, reportedly the Cubs were in and out, you know, Patrick, exactly. said it was so very nobody, unlikely. The Cubs nobody knows him. anything. He That's my sources. theme of the off season. But uh, I, I just want to be clear about the contract itself. I, it, this might come across as confusing, but just, just to kind of lay out what the contract is, I think should be fair. Uh, it, so he does get two years at 15 million a year. I, well, I don't, I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head because they change a little bit, but he has two years and he has, he has 30 million guaranteed over those two years, I believe is the number. But then after the second year, it's the Cubs who have an option for all three years. Like if they're picking up the option, they're picking up the next three years and he's getting that to make it five eighty million dollars If the Cubs decline that option, then Shota has a player option hmm. for the next year so that he can opt into uh, the next year, get that third year, which or he can opt out of the contract to be a free agent. And then if he say he opts into that contract again uh, the next year, then after that year, the Cubs have an option for a two-year contract to make it the $80 million. And then if they decline that, once again, Shota has the option to opt in and out. So it is kind of a little bit complex there where it's like, if the Cubs are picking it up, they're picking up the rest of the contract. And if it's Shota, he's kind of going one by one, like on his own. So I imagine if he pitches pretty well in those first two years, they'll just pick up the final three. But who knows? That, yeah. The way I see it the last time, I, I feel like that sweet spot where Shota is like, where Shota's good enough to go out and beat the contract, but the Cubs don't want to keep him. That seems like a really hard spot to hit. So the way I see it, it's like, it's either going to be that 580 or it's going to be that 453. I think it's unlikely that he opts out after the second year, because if the Cubs aren't willing to pick up his, you know, that, that three-year option, it seems unlikely to me he's going to beat that player option. So I would think he would opt back into that. So that's just the way I look at it. I'm excited. I know all three of us are excited about this. Um, it's fun, too. We're about a month out from pitchers and catchers reporting. We're inside of a month out at this point. And I'm sitting here going, okay, what's the rotation going to be? Okay, Justin's going to be at the top, you imagine. Um, certainly, he's the ace of this team. And then are the Cubs going to go lefty-righty, lefty-righty? If that's the case, is it Kyle number two? Is it Tyone number two? You know, that's fun. And obviously, these are things that are going to be answered over the next month or two as we get in towards spring training. But it's fun to be thinking about this. And um, I don't think the starting rotation is going to be a weak spot for the Cubs in 2024. I'm, I think there's a lot of quality arms and those fringe guys, the Javier Assad types, um, the, the Hayden Wesneskis, where these guys are going to start games. They may also come out of the bullpen, but lots of starting innings are going to be taken up by guys that are going to get a lot of outs. Yeah, for my money, I think Shota is nominally going to be the number two, but that council will break them up so that you don't have two lefties back to back in the rotation, which is fine. Uh, you know, I don't think anybody says, oh, I was the number two, but I I pitched third in the rotation. It really it really bummed me out. Um, and like we said last week, signing a pitcher like Imanaga, who doesn't necessarily become an ace, but he slots in higher in the rotation. It takes your depth guys and it pushes them lower down the depth chart. So you're no longer relying on maybe two 
of Wisniewski and Assad to make starts for you regularly. You might only be relying on one of them. And the other guys, they can either go to the bullpen, they can be depth. And again, I think we know that Cade Horton, assuming he comes out of the gate healthy and effective, is going to be knocking on the door by the time the Ivy starts to grow in. And that's going to be, I think, a very nice X factor in this rotation. So like you said, like you said, Ronan, right, they are right now, and things can change in an instant. Things can change like the Chicago weather. But right now, I think they are in a good spot with the rotation. Yeah, don't forget the other lefty that was pitching at the end of last season, Jordan Wicks. I mean, he's, exactly. he's got a good chance of being in there at the start of the year. And, uh, of course, Ben Brown's probably going to be knocking at the door sometimes. So, like, that's where the Cubs' kind of strength is. Is They've kind of all these kind of, like, depth pieces that are young, mostly young, that are coming up trying to establish themselves. And it's like, how is Craig Council going to use them? I, I just... You know, some of them are going to be in Iowa. Some of them are going to be probably making starts, and some of them are going to be trying to come out of the bullpen. So that's that's going to be fascinating for us to see throughout spring training and into the start of the season. Do you see the Cubs adding another starter going into spring training, or do you think they've got enough guys in the mix right now that you roll the dice with what you got? I think Jed is on the record as saying that they're mostly done adding to the rotation. I think he said in the media scrum at the convention that they they feel like they're set on paper. He's you know he like a true executive he wasn't willing to rule out making another move if and i quote something falls into their laps but it does seem like they're very much done adding to their set rotation but you, you never know who might be out there as a, an attainable depth guy who could slot in with that Assad Wisniewski Wicks group and provide you depth in the number five spot or pitch in long relief but it does seem like rotation wise they have mostly completed their shopping list i i think that's fair i think they are most likely done but i i think that i feel like the way this rest of this offseason is kind of going is I feel like the Cubs are obviously being very discerning in what moves they're going to make. And I think the focus is probably on getting a hitter, at least one hitter. Um, but I think like if a guy drops into their price range that they think is a good deal that could add to the rotation and that's like the move to make at that time, I, I don't think they would be opposed to making that move. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, I saw the Cubs are reporting Valentine's Day, February 14, is when the Cubs are going to get down there to Mesa. Um, one more thought here. Number 18, Randall, you're the numbers guy. How excited were you to see World Series MVP Ben Zobrist's number going to the new Cubs lefty? Well, that's a neat wrinkle. He has a history, all of his history, wearing number 21 uh, with Yokohama. So I thought he might take that. But 18 actually has a history among Japanese starting pitchers. It is a prestige number for Japanese starting pitchers. Uh, similar to how 24 is kind of the number for center fielders here that actually dates back many decades when the Tokyo Yomiuri Giants would assign it to their staff ace in the 1960s and 1970s. Daisuke Matsuzaka is a number 18, or at least was in MLB. Yoshinobu Yamamoto, I believe Hiroki Kuroda, uh, Yusei Kikuchi, I think started MLB, his MLB time in that number. So it's a prestige number for Japanese starting pitchers. And again, whoever prepared him for his media availability and told him to, or, and, you know, maybe suggested that he take a look at Ben Zobrist and, you know, look at that connection, I think did a great job. So it's a, it's a good number for him. It's a number that's been on a couple different guys. The last few years, we saw it on Frank Schwindel, nothing against Frank Schwindel. Uh, we saw it briefly on Jared Young at the end of last season. So I like a, a good number, like 18, a strong number, Ben Zobrist number. I like that it's going to be out there on a guy every fifth or every sixth day or so.
Yeah, I think it's a good number. I, I like this little story he told about how he was looking through, you know, Cubs history and he wanted to be a Ben Zopris type player. And I like that, you know, Zopris backed it up. He said that yeah. they had the same agent and uh, can't guy can they came from the agency. And so he's like, Yeah, he said it's not my number, it's the Cubs number. You know, you go out and wear it, make it proud. So uh yeah, I think it's pretty cool. Uh, and uh, and you know, I, I don't know what all the numbers were that all the Japanese pitchers have worn for the Cubs. You know, you got quite a few of them. You got Darvish, sure. you got Wada, Wada, you got bring him up. You got Yuihara and, and, and a whole bunch of guys. So uh, uh, it's nice to see Imanaga as the next guy in that. Yeah. I got to say, too, speaking of Ben Zobris, just cool seeing him around the organization, right? Just having him at Cubs convention. It's just great to have him around with everything that he's done for this organization and, frankly, everything he's been through since he's hung up his cleats. Um, we're happy he is a Cub and he's going to be around Wrigley Field for a long time. As long as Imanaga has better entry music than the last prominent <laughs> guy to wear number 18. Uh, Jeremy, one more aside. You mentioned Tsuyoshi Wada. He was also a number 18 for the Chicago I kind of had that feeling. Yep. So, again, it's, it's a number that has a, a very specific prestige to it, to starting pitchers to come over from Japan. And it, it's nice to see. It's neat to see Imanaga kind of continuing that, that informal tradition. Do we know, and I'm sure Randall can look this up quickly, what number uh, Hideo Nomo War with the Iowa Cubs in his stint down there. Oh boy, you know, baseball reference does not keep does not keep minor league numbers, and that is my my primary source for most guys. But uh, you know, there's Maybe nothing you can Google find an know. image, so like a yeah, guy, there's nothing Google doesn't know, and I'll see if we can find it. We could drop a few he, uh... more names. Uh, Kuji Fujikawa mm -hmm. was another guy. Wasn't there? Right. There was another guy. I can't think. His name was like. Isanori, there was a guy whose name started. Isanori Takahashi. Is Takahashi. I remember, I remember because I went to a game in like 2013, whatever year it was, and somebody had like a Takahashi jersey. And I'm what? A Cubs. And I was like, this that has to be family. I just remember walking behind it. I'm like, that has to be a guy from Japan or something who has a Cubs Takahashi jersey. Uh, yes, Hisanori Takahashi, who pitched for the 2013 Chicago yeah, Cubs. Okay, 2013 makes sense. 2013, and he did so in number 47. So he was not on the number 18 train. <laughs> And Nomo obviously never got to the Major League Cubs, but it was a big deal at the time when he was pitching in Des Moines. We'll see if Randall can track that down here. We'll get an update on that before we are done. Um, the other thing, oh, you're ready. I guess he's yes. ready. Yes, so I, I, I was able to get one photo here of uh, Hideo Nomo pitching, I believe, for the Chicago Cubs, courtesy Iowa. of the Des Moines. Iowa Cubs. Uh, Iowa Cubs, I beg your pardon. Courtesy of the Des Moines Register. I can't see the whole number here, but it begins with a number two. So uh, mm. by definition, that would suggest it was not number 18. I don't math especially well, but number 18 does not begin with number two. All right. Well, good stuff. Just had me thinking about some of these um, Japanese players over the years in the Cubs system. You guys record the emergency podcast last week, and then the Cubs immediately make a trade with the Dodgers the next day. You didn't get a chance to talk about it. I want to talk about it. Um, the two guys coming over, Michael Bush, an infielder, Yancey Almonte, a relief pitcher. I want to focus more on who the Cubs acquired before we talk about what they lost. Uh, the big name here, Michael Bush, 26-year-old corner infielder. He's played some third base. He's played some first base. It seems that this may be the Cubs opening day first baseman. Jeremy, do you think Michael Bush is starting at first base on opening day? You know what? I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say I think he is starting at first base on opening day. I think that uh, right now you he's probably penciled in as their opening day first base because I don't think they know exactly what direction they're going to go. I think they're they're still open to acquiring a first baseman, but I, I think, I think he will be the first baseman. And uh, this was an interesting trade. Cause it was, I, I was, it's one of those weird trades where like, 
the secondary piece is the piece that's first reported, which is always very weird and fun when you're like on Twitter and you're like, oh, the Cubs are acquiring Yancy Almonte. And I was like, eh, Yancy Almonte. It's just like a release right, sure, pitcher. Fine, I hope it's not like their main move, another off, whatever. And then it's, it's like, oh, by the way, like first rounder Michael Bush, who was the Pacific Coast League MVP last year, uh, you know, has pretty much his uh, top 50 prospect according to MLB.com at the time, like just mashed everywhere he's been from North Carolina, University of North Carolina. Like he's also in the trade. And you're like, okay, so now this is an interesting trade. Uh, th- this kind of thing. And yeah, I, I, I just thought it was fascinating where, uh, you know, the Cubs went out and acquired like Baseball America had him in their Dodgers number one prospect. So they went out and got the Dodgers number one prospect. Uh, and it was just, it was an interesting deal. Like it's not really a deal you see often like that. You don't really see a team trading their number one prospect for more prospects. Like that's a kind of a fascinating deal. So, uh, but I like it. I like the idea. I think, I think the kid can hit. So, and right now the Cubs have a hole. They have two holes. They have a hole at third. They have a hole at first. I think he's going to be in one of those holes. He's, yeah. I mean, he's probably going to be in one of those holes. Uh, it, it's a trade that, you know, I don't know that the Dodgers feel like they're giving up all that much. I'm always a little weary of the 26-year-old PCL MVP who was never really given a, a ton of major league time with his previous organization. Now, I will say it's because he is kind of blocked or was kind of blocked with the Dodgers at his two primary positions, first base and third base. You have, of course, Freddie Freeman at first base and Max Muncy still doing his best to hold it down there over at third base. So he was blocked a little bit of second base, a little bit of left field, but it doesn't sound like those are real viable positions for him at this point. So, you know, he is 26. He is old. He was old for AAA and for a, a prospect, he's still older, but you can explain that away by him being blocked pretty, pretty well with his former organization, but he is left-handed. He does have power. Jeremy, 27 home runs at AAA in 2023. Yeah. 27. So it, yeah. So it's a, it's a very, very compelling kind of buy low and the Dodgers give up a guy that they felt was blocked and they cleared specifically two 40 man spots for their, uh, their other acquisition. So hopefully it's been one of those trades that kind of works out for all sides. Yeah. The Dodgers needed to open up space on the 40 man. So they, the Cubs get two major league ready guys. The Cubs give up some guys that are a couple years away from the majors. If they ever even get there. And like I said, we'll get to the two of them in a minute. Um, Michael Bush crushes the ball. We know that he walks too. So you got a slugger here. You get a guy who walks, Defense is a big question mark, especially at third base. There's a lot of uncertainty that this guy can be a major league third baseman. But if you're a pessimist right now, and I saw this criticism online the last couple of days, people saying, well, this is just Matt Mervis. Why would the Cubs go out and trade for another Matt Mervis? Jeremy, is that an apt comp, Michael Bush to Matt Mervis? I, I don't believe so. For for once, he's he was he's been well more highly or he's been more highly thought of than Matt Mervis has been for the last couple of years. Like Matt Mervis has never been thought of as a top fifty prospect by anyone. So uh, Michael Bush has been. Michael Bush was a first round draft pick. Michael Bush uh, has mashed at every level. Like that's the one thing I want to say is is I would understand. Like he's a twenty six year old. He's mashing the PCL. Yeah, whatever. He has hit every challenge like he's in the pcl for this third year but it's not his third year the first like if it was his first time hitting at age 25 or something or just because he was old i'd be like oh yeah okay but he hits when he gets to a level and he keeps keeps hitting um until he reached majors he had a very brief stint with the dodgers last year and as randall said he's not displacing freddie freeman he's not displacing i mean he's not really a second baseman but he's not displacing moogie bats he's not displacing max they had to move him uh and everybody knew they had to move him like he was a guy that was kind of on 
like prospect radars as being like, okay, this is a guy that's eventually going to be traded. And I think the actual trade is kind of shocking because you, you thought he was going to be traded for like a big name. You didn't think he'd be traded for, you know, low level minor leaguers. Cause like Rosenthal reported that he was in discussions um, with the Dodgers for Dylan Cease, uh, and, excuse me, with the White Sox and the White Sox, you know, trading him for Dylan Cease. And then the Dodgers would have traded. Dylan Cease to a third team possibly for their for prospects, which kind of made me think maybe it's a team that the White Sox didn't want to trade Dylan Cease directly to and a team that was talking about Michael Bush. And so maybe that's like the team that was maybe possibly wanting to get Michael, wanting to get Dylan Cease for just, you know, prospects and then said, you know, hey, you know what? Maybe we'll just take Michael Bush anyways. But uh, that, that's just a little conspiracy theory. But uh, I, I, I think it's good. Hit. Like Baseball America published their top 100, I think yesterday, and they published – Today they published the average velocity of all the hitters uh, in the top 100. Michael Bush was number six on that list. Like he was of all the hitters in the top 100 list, he had the sixth highest average exit velocity. Uh, number three on the list was Owen Casey, by the way. But Michael Bush was number six. Uh, excuse, excuse me, that's actually not correct. Michael Bush was number 14, still pretty high. Matt Shaw was number six, which is pretty cool too. Matt Shaw, but Michael Bush is still pretty high. At number fourteen, over ninety-one miles per hour, huge number. So I, I think the guy can hit. I think he's going to hit, and I think I like the fact that the Cubs made kind of this really interesting deal to get a, do- a top prospect from the Dodgers. And Ronan, I know again you love tension and maybe maybe uh, playing devil's advocate in that way that you do. I think if there's another knock on Michael Bush coming over in this deal, it's that the defensive versatility I think is probably a little overstated. It sounds like the Cubs view him chiefly as a first baseman or maybe a DH. It doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of third base in there. Sahadev Sharma, who, again, I generally trust among the local beat reporters, he relayed that sentiment from the Cubs that they view him much more as a first baseman versus a third baseman. So I think the defensive versatility, first base, second base, third base, left field. I think that's a little overstated. I think he's probably chiefly a first baseman who you might be able to move somewhere else in an emergency. So I think that's maybe a knock too. But again, if you can get a slugging first baseman, it's still a problem that needed to be solved. And hopefully that is a, a, a I know you love this phrase, a hole that they have filled. Well, Andy's a left-handed bat. And that's certainly something the Cubs lineup needs more of right now. Uh, We'll get to Cody Bellinger here in a minute. But um, generally, yeah, this is exciting. The MLB uh, prospect pipeline already listed him as the number three Cubs prospect. That's uh, MLB.com and their writers sort of looking at the Cubs system and saying, hey, this guy's number three in here. Um, And potentially, as of now, your opening day first baseman for the Chicago Cubs. Uh, The other arm they got here, Yancy Almonte, 29-year-old. This is a guy who's been inconsistent like a lot of relievers are, but high strikeout guy. And if the Cubs need anything right now, it's just more guys in the mix in the bullpen. I don't think there's anything wrong. I saw this guy pitch pretty well in Colorado a couple of years ago. Mixed results in L.A. Why not throw some darts here with Almonte and see if he can help out the bullpen? Absolutely. There's, he's a middle reliever, and that's fine. You can never have too many middle relievers because if a guy is better than being a middle reliever, he ends up setting up or closing. So middle relievers are inconsistent. You can never have too many of them. They can vary wildly from year to year. We saw it with Almonte. He put up a ERA of just over one in 2022 and an ERA of just over five in 2023. So it varies wildly from year to year. You can never have too many guys. And it's just another name in the, uh, in the mix there. So you can never have too many of those. Right. Uh, Yeah. I just think, you know, he was just kind of another arm just to throw into this trade, just to kind of make it a little more uh, going back. And 
like I said, when it was first reported that Yancy Almonte, the Cubs are training for Yancy, like that was just a huge meh for me. Like I didn't really care. I'm like, oh, he's kind of interesting. He had a decent year a couple of years ago. Maybe he has some strikeouts. But, you know, now the fact that like, yeah, he's just kind of this add into the deal. Like, yeah, throw him in the mix, as Randall said. See what comes out. Maybe something good comes out. Maybe not. And then you just move on. But, you know, Michael Bush is obviously the key here. But who knows? A guy like Yancy Almonte, every once in a while, one of those guys produces a ton. Absolutely. And that's the fun of watching a deal trickle out in real time. Jeremy, like you mentioned earlier, the deal initially was just Cubs acquire Yancy Almonte, and then it got a lot more compelling uh, in the half hour or so to follow. So that's the fun of watching things kind of uh, not unfold in real time because, you know, they're all done, but learning about things in real time and how things look very different at 2 p.m. than they did at 1 p.m. a lot of the time. I think I speak for all of us when I say I was bummed to see Jackson Ferris leave the organization. Guy just turned 20. He's a left-hander, a former second-round pick for the Cubs. Years away from the majors, though, if he ever even gets there. And these are the kind of deals you got to do. So I like this trade for the Cubs. I think it helps the team get better next year. But you're always bummed when you've got this prospect that you're excited about that ends up leaving the organization. Yeah, Jackson Ferris, he was uh, an overslot pick in the second round, and that was a kind of a strategic pairing of that pick with taking Cade Horton slightly underslot in the first round. Cade Horton so far has panned out. Jackson Ferris, like you said, he was a prep arm, uh, who's still a lot of years away. He is the big loss for me, but that's, that's an interesting way to look at this draft pick two years after the fact. He was a 2022 draft pick. Again, the Cubs took a big swing on him in the second round. And I think in his limited sample size, he certainly produced. But Cade Horton, uh, that much closer to the majors, that much more regarded as a prospect and allowed, allows you to use this former big swing second round pick as currency in a trade like this. So, you know, it's all a tapestry and this is where that particular thread ends up going. And, you know, you wouldn't necessarily have seen that coming that your big overslot second round pick in 2022 ends up as a, a trade chip in 2024, at least for kind of a, a lower end deal like this. And as I hear hope, I know a lot of people did not like that pick that he was more toolsy than talented, especially as a prep outfielder. Uh, I don't know that that's any big loss necessarily. Not Nothing against against uh, Mr. Hope. And if he's listening, I do apologize, but uh, I, get, I don't think that's a huge loss. Wow. Randall, Randall, I desire hope the 11th round pick. I, I'm surprised <laughs> people, people are that uh, frustrated with an 11th round pick, you know, oh, everyone's frustrated uh, with something, Jeremy, you know, this as well as I do. But uh, I, I, my opinion is, you know, with Jackson first, yeah, that, that, you know, to get something, you got to give something right. So like, I think Michael, the, Acquire Michael Bush is a, is a great thing. I don't think it's like a buy low thing. He's, he's still a top 50 prospect by Baseball America, uh, who just released it yesterday. Uh, so, like, I think he's going to be a stud. And in order to get a stud, you got you to gotta give up a stud. And I think Jackson Ferris, as Randall said, he performed pretty well. But he's far away. And I think the Cubs are really confident in their ability to identify pitching, develop pitching. I think it's something the Cubs are confident now. You have another guy who's a lefty, uh, kind of in the same spot as Jackson Ferris, not quite as... Uh, uh, successful, I guess, so far in, in Drew Gray, who the Cubs have, who's gotten a lot of rave reviews. So you kind of have a guy already like that as well. So I, I, I think that the Cubs, I'm afraid that the Dodgers are going to turn Jackson Ferris into something because the Dodgers are the best at what they do. And so I think that, you know, that's a reasonable fear. But I, and I, I think the same as I hear hope, like, you know, baseball perspectives was very high on Zaire hope. They just, they just thought he was, you know, 
so young and so kind of new that they couldn't really put him up there that much, but they had a lot of positive things to say about him, especially. So I'm, I'm afraid that the Dodgers are going to develop both these guys. Like I think in a couple, four years from now, we could be talking about both these guys possibly being in the top 100 prospects, you know, three years from now. But uh, right now the Cubs need a first baseman. They get a top 50 prospect at baseball by multiple sources. They get, uh, you know, a number one prospect from the Dodgers by baseball America. Like, I'm not going to complain about that. I, these guys are so far away. I, this is why you develop a farm yeah. system, right? Is to use pieces. Um, you know, sometimes they'll be in your in your system and they'll go all the way up to the majors. And sometimes you use them to get somebody. And that's what happened with Jackson Ferris. I wish them all the best of luck. And after a super quiet start to the offseason, I'm talking about the first two months or so of the offseason, the Cubs making these moves just in time for the Cubs convention. So both Shoda and Michael Bush able to meet some Cubs fans out at Cubs convention last weekend. Um, lots of things going on at Cubs convention. It was on marquee. I'm at home here sick. Had a chance to watch it. The thrill that I got watching Coy Hill walk across that stage, folks, can't say enough about it. But for us, Cubs fans that really earned our fandom in the 1990s and the early 2000s, the induction of Kerry Wood and Aramis Ramirez into the Cubs Hall of Fame, I mean, that's a fastball down the middle to the three of us. I know I'm speaking for both of you when I say we couldn't be happier that those two guys are the newest members of the Chicago Cubs Hall of Fame. Kerry Wood? favorite Cubs pitcher I have ever seen on the mound as a Cub. You know, that's a fastball right down the middle. That's a big stake for all three of us, short of maybe Sosa. I don't think there are maybe two other players who would have been better fits for this podcast. And Ronan, if you were watching on TV, as it sounds like you were, you got to see the video that Very they, cool. yeah, yeah, where they had Kerry Wood's son, Justin, who famously ran out and hugged his dad as Kerry Wood left the Wrigley Field mound for the last time in 2011. And Aramis Ramirez's son, Aramis Ramirez Jr., aptly named, uh, they had those two uh, MLB sons, I guess, narrate this video. Um, and Kerry Wood said after the fact, he found out backstage like five minutes prior. He was not privy to anything um, before opening ceremony. So that had to be. Uh, just an incredible moment for those two players. And again, Kerry Wood and Aramis Ramirez probably, I would think, occupy a spot in our top 10 favorite Cubs. You know, we all have different lists, oh, yeah. but I have to think they'd be on there somewhere for all of us. So what a great moment for those two players and well-deserved. Just uh, don't invite Bob Renly back for the ceremony and tell David Kaplan he's not allowed to come to the ceremony. So much debt. That's so funny. Um, I, I I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, those are those are my two guys. Like I in the two thousands, if you were to ask me who are my two favorite Cubs, they would be Kerry Wood and Ramos Ramirez. Uh, I Kerry Wood is the pitcher, and Ramos Ramirez is the batter as the hitter. I I, I was. I would I remember loving like what a steal, honestly, that Ramos Ramirez was oh, from the Pirates. Ridiculous. Like Jim just, Jim Hendry could swing a trade, man. Yeah, just like he had this monster year and then he had a bad year and then he had an okay year. And they kind of, like, I remember thinking, like, okay, we're getting Kenny Lofton and like Aramis Ramirez for, you know, Bobby Hill. Like, oh, that was incredible. <laughs> and he was like 23 years old and yeah. just an absolute steal. Tip of the hat to Jim Hendry there. And he was a wonderful cub for, you know, he got some hate towards the end, but. As unfortunately a lot of the guys did, but and Kerry Wood, you know, as I always like to say, hey, Kerry Wood was on four Cubs playoff teams. Like that's pretty impressive to me. Um, and he had the greatest game ever pitched in Major League Baseball history. Nobody could ever argue with me. I don't even think it's arguable. It's not arguable uh, in any account. Uh, so Kerry Wood, a stud. I loved Kerry Wood. Um, I, I totally deserving. There's 
they are 100 both of them are 100% deserving to be for what a Cubs Hall of Famer. I'm not, you know, Craig Council throwing shade on a Cubs Hall of Famer, what constitutes a real Cubs Hall of Famer. But, you know, for guys who represented the Cubs and yeah, they don't have to be MLB Hall of Famer status, baseball Hall of Famer status, but like they're deserving to be in for what they did for over a 10-year period on the Cubs. Both guys are 100% deserving. Both guys were integral parts of multiple playoff teams, division-winning teams, 03, 07, 08. Both guys were on all three of those teams, plus Kerry in 98. So I, I'm very happy that both of them are in. And Kerry Wood being inducted into the Team Hall of Fame, I think kind of checks a box, because I know there's a lot of – there's a, there's a – at least a vocal subsection out there, retire Kerry Woods, number 34, dual retire for Wood and Lester. I'm not for that. I, I like that the Cubs threshold is Hall of Fame enshrinement, or in the case of Ron Santo, should be Hall of Fame enshrinement. I don't think you're ever going to see 34 retired for Lester or Wood, despite their immense contributions. This, I think, ticks a very necessary box of enshrining him as someone indispensable to the history of this franchise and it doesn't have to be a number retirement i appreciate that the cubs are not the yankees mm -hmm. where they retire the number of a guy who did something in the postseason for them once and they they put it out in monument park yeah. so i think this ticks a very necessary box for both players and carry wood especially with that number 34 a number that has a lot of recent glory on it so it, i like it I, I don't think there's anything to dislike about it i don't think you could find too many things to complain about with this and, you know, I know we've talked about on the show, you can honor a number without retiring it. You can, like, absolutely. Like, not anybody's allowed to wear number 34 for the Chicago Cubs. That, I to like me, it. is a great honor. When John Lester comes over and takes 34, you're like, damn, this is a big thing here. This guy has earned it. He can wear that number. And maybe we're seeing that with number 18 here, too, right, with what the Cubs have done with Zobris and all that. So I like that. Um, it also got me thinking, boy, if we could just take 2003 Kerry Wood and 2003 Aramis Ramirez and insert them to the 2024 Chicago Cubs, we got some big holes here patched up immediately. If only it worked that way. And by the way, Aramis's first baseman there, Derek Lee, for much of that decade, if they could get him back at first yeah. base, boy, talk about a pennant. Lock in that pennant right now. If only you could actually put an all-time Cubs team on the field, you'd be set in a number of ways. Ronan, I like what you said about you can honor numbers without retiring them. 18 has certainly been passed around a little bit, but I like that hopefully it's going to be on a guy that we have high hopes for. I like that 34 isn't just assigned all willy-nilly. That's a scientific term, willy-nilly. And speaking of jersey numbers, we know they were talking about the convention. We know they run out the top prospects out there prior to introducing the major league. This doesn't mean anything, but Cade Horton walked out there wearing a number 49 jersey. Uh, I think that's a damn good look for a jersey, especially for a pitcher prospect that you have high hopes for it doesn't mean anything you know i'm sure they ask these guys hey what number do you want to wear on a jersey at the convention they do that but a horton number 49 jersey that's a real good look and i wonder if that is something that we will hopefully see at the major league level doesn't mean anything not binding but as jerseys go that's a good look and I will also say the disrespect the Cubs have shown number 21 yes. since Sammy Sosa has left town. That's pissed me off for about 20 years now. Um, Sammy, next year, Cubs Hall of Fame. Join some of your former teammates there, like Kerry Wood and Aramis Ramirez. I, I do feel like momentum is shifting in that direction. I think we're closer than ever to see Sammy in a Cubs Hall of Fame. And as I've said before on the show and in private with you guys, 
the day that they announced Sammy is coming back, I am booking my flight from Denver. I'm at Wrigley Field that night, and I will be there. I don't care if it's April 5th, if it's the end of the year and a lost season, Sammy comes back, and I'm coming home for that. I want to see that happen. I think next year would be perfect. You're chartering a private jet, and you're going to skydive into Wrigleyville that day. You're, you're going to jump. You're going to pull the chute. You're going to gently float down, land in front of the ballpark, and say, all right, let's go honor Sammy. Yeah, and I, that was the only thing that's disappointing to me about Kerry Wood and Ramos Ramirez is the fact that it's not Sammy. Like I, yeah, I knew it wasn't gonna be Sammy, but say honestly, I as much as I love Kerry Wood, as much as I love Ramos Ramirez, which is as I much as you can love any ball player, Sammy Sosa, I obviously deserves it more than they do, and he should be in there already. And I imagine if you ask Kerry Wood and you ask Ramos Ramirez, I know there's some other foreign players that are anti-Sammy, but Kerry Wood said that. You know, Sammy should be welcome back. He has said that in the past, and I can't imagine Aramis doesn't like Sammy. I mean, yeah. maybe that's just me, but they're both from the Dominican, so I figure they might like each other, but who knows? Uh, but and, Gary Wood has he, said in the past, welcome Sammy back. And even if they don't like him, it doesn't matter what he means to the organization, what he means to the fan base by and large. There's obviously vocal people in the Cubs fan base who have issues with Sammy Sosa. Um, let it go. Let it go. He means a lot to an entire generation of Cubs fans. And my God, he hit a ton of home runs in Chicago. I want to see him back at Wrigley Field. Yeah, I was just only saying that just because the, however truthful or probably not at all, but the rumors I have heard is that there are certain former Cubs that are in Tom Ricketts ear that are anti-Sammy that are poisoning his ear against him. My speculation possibly, you know, some beloved Cubs, like maybe a Mark Grace and a Ryan Sandberg, but who knows? I was going to ask if his name rhymes with, you know, Clark, Clark space, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. Um, even so, I think Mark can get over that. Um, I was disappointed to not see him at the Cubs convention for what it's worth. The one thing that it cemented watching it, I've not watched Cubs convention coverage in years. It was just that perfect storm of having COVID and having Fubo for a short amount of time that I had access to it. Seeing the number of grown men and women like knocking over children, running <laughs> yeah. into that ballroom, that is not the event for me, right? And then you couple that with like Cole Wright doing his thing. I'm watching it going, what am I doing here? I don't know if this is good or bad for my health to watch this, but I did have a big smile on my face seeing Coy Hill. I've always loved Coy Hill. Um, I got a little bit sad though seeing Billy Williams, who's um, showing his age, unfortunately. Just seeing him sort of struggle across the stage. It's always good to see Billy Williams, but even though he predated me by many, many years, tough to see him aging on on the screen there and i hope we have him for many more years to come still yeah hopefully you know the if he needs to be helped across the stage or at functions hopefully that's something the cubs can manage you said you had cubs and fubo are you still testing positive for fubo that's my question and fubo is is something man i i gotta tell you it's so funny uh, because I'm I'm borrowing the channel from a family member who what's very funny to me about it is what's good with Fubo is there's a lot of sports channels on there. So I have access to MLB Network, which I haven't had for years. I've got Marquee, um, any sporting event that's on TV, you got access to it. But the family member that I'm sort of mooching this off of is extremely progressive. And all of these channels on Fubo, it's like every conservative news channel you could ever imagine. So I'm flipping through. It's not just Fox News and all that. It's like the second, third, fourth, fifth tier conservative news channels that the Sean Spicer show is on one of these channels on Fubo. And I'm going, I cannot believe that this family member is paying for this service. That had me cracking up. Definitely raises some questions as to what Fubo (laughs) stands for. I certainly have some have some ideas in, in that regard. Um. But, you know, the Cubs convention, I was going to say, it 
So it has always, I've never been to the Cubs convention and we know that I've been a voracious Cubs fan for a very, very long time. I've never been. It has always seemed like the perfect event to observe from afar. It used to be the panels were on WGN radio all day Saturday. Now, of course, the Cubs have uh, not just a TV from much bigger TV presence. They have their own TV presence and everything is televised. It's the perfect event to follow remotely. For me, you watch opening ceremonies without having to be crammed in the ballroom. You can watch the panels. You can get clips from the panels. You can do all of that from the comfort of your own home. And that is perfect for me. I'm just not 100% sure I would ever want to go. If someone wants to, you know, comp me some passes next year, uh, I'm certainly willing to think about it. I don't know that's the sort of thing I would ever pay money to go to. And I, I, it's great that it's all covered remotely and on TV and online because that's that's 100% perfect. And you mentioned Cole Wright, Ronan. He shouts his loud as he does to cover up the sound of it being as forced as it is well i was just gonna say you can't remotely uh see coverage of tom's mingle or whatever it was so well, you might want to pay sacrifices. some money for that you get a beer with tom yeah uh boy when he started talking about oh meet me at shula's for a beer yeah. i just <laughs> i wanted to reach through the television and slap him and go why are you such a douchebag i mean just be an owner spend money on the team get out of the way but you just can't help but be a pain in the ass every time you open your mouth, can you? The, the only thing more forced than Cole Wright emceeing the event was Tom Ricketts' <laughs> opening monologue. I, I cringed so hard, I nearly, I nearly yeah. pulled a muscle. I, I just can't imagine like when he gives that opening monologue, and he's always so whatever. But he, like, the fans start chanting, and he like stops to acknowledge it, and it's like, why are you doing? Just keep going, man. Just it's like rough. give your, just yeah. like it makes it more awkward when like. They're talking about, you know, whatever. And then everybody starts like we had a huge free agent signing. Like he's Ugh. trying to show off in Monaga. Like, I understand whatever, but it's still so awkward. And then everybody starts saying Cody and he's like, uh, like, you know, completely taken out of it. It's like, dude, like maybe this isn't for you. Maybe you shouldn't be no. giving this speech. And to tie Imanaga to Cubs convention, Ronan, two things. I know that you were following his press conference last Friday. You were asking who's cheering during this press conference. Apparently, not apparently, definitely, they held the press conference at the hotel across the street from the Sheraton where the convention is held. And apparently they were allowing season ticket holders to stand in at the back of the press conference. So that answers the question of who is cheering as he says, hey, Chicago, what do you say? And then secondly, I love that this is his first exposure to Cubs fans. We know he's been in Chicago for over a month at this point. We know he's seen all sorts of advertisements, but I love that his first exposure is that he gets to hear his name called, walk out on the stage at Cubs convention, see the people cheering. I love that. And I hope he has a long and pleasant and productive career here stemming from that positive first experience. I hope it was a positive yeah. first experience. I don't want to speak for him. I hope it was. One other observation I had, just kind of closing thoughts on the convention, is kind of how cool it is how Pat Hughes has really become Chicago Cubs royalty. I mean, he he's a Hall of Famer, obviously, he's a broadcaster, but he was holding center court there next to Billy Williams and Fergie Jenkins and Rick Sutcliffe and Pat Hughes in the middle of all of that. I thought that was really neat. Um, Randall, I saw you complaining on Twitter. Well, why isn't Pat Hughes emceeing the event? We I did say that. We certainly prefer that to Cole Wright. But at the same time, I think he's earned at this point in his career, get the night off, man, get treated like royalty, be walked out to the middle of the stage there. Um, whatever Cole Wright does does not appeal to me. And, and maybe there are segments of the fan base where his shtick is attractive to. Um, but I'm okay with Pat Hughes not having to do that circus either because it never really felt like 
a Pat Hughes type of an event either, if that makes sense. It was cool that's, to see him, though, with Cubs royalty. That's fair. He is, it, he is Cubs royalty. He, he is Cubs royalty. He's been royalty to us for years. It's just official now. That's fair. It isn't maybe – it doesn't maybe match his type of energy, his wavelength. So that's fair. Let Cole Wright do the shouting, and Pat can just get the ovation. I, I do like that take on it. And if there's anything else I don't need, it's Taylor McGregor – interviewing players and their the wives road. and yeah. girlfriends as they walk in about the the shoes they're wearing and the clothes they're wearing Blue that carpet. was about the point in the night where i'm like what am i doing why did i have to get covid right now this isn't great but that may have caused your 102 degree fever I, I don't think it helped um but hey you know there's portions of the fan base that that's for and i hope that those folks enjoyed it um some other cool news here ryan sambert favorite of the pod getting a statue out at wrigley field that will be unveiled on june 23rd this is sort of scary though the 40th anniversary of the ryan sambert game guys 40 years since his big game against the cardinals but we're all behind a statue for rhino out at wrigley field seems long overdue also perfect on even though that was the date but you know on the 23rd of June, you know, gotta yeah, get that cool. 23 in there. Yeah, you know, standing out there on Gallagher Way where they have the statues all lined up. It is cool, especially after it has cleared out a little bit. You can just kind of stand there and appreciate the legends. And it, it's great to see Rhino will be added to that. And, you know, hopefully that's the sort of thing that Billy Williams is healthy and able to attend. You know that he'll be there. You know that Fergie will be there. You know that Ronnie will be looking down from above and uh, smiling. So it, it's always nice to honor another franchise legend. And hopefully... A uh, guy who wasn't there at Cubs convention, but it was his teammate, Mr. The Hawk. My guy, Andre Dawson, will be there. I'm hoping for yeah. that. Um, One other thought on the Cubs here, and then a couple of uh, random things as we bring the show home here today. How are we feeling about Cody Bellinger coming back to the Cubs? Right? He's the big marquee name right now in terms of free agents. Uh, he can play center field. He can play first base. He's a left-handed bat. Uh, are we optimistic or are we feeling like, I don't think Cody's coming back? A lot can change over the next month, but uh, temperature check here, Jeremy. What do you think about Cody coming back to the north side? Yeah, so I'm kind of optimistic on this just because I, I feel like there's not really – it's like there's not a spot, right? Like where is he going to go? It doesn't really feel like there's – there's definitely not where like he's going to get the money that he really kind of wants. It feels like to me, I know Boris can wait as long as he wants. He waits into spring training in the past, but, uh, and then you get like a Victor Martinez situation where Prince Fielder signs for a monster contract, but I, it just doesn't feel like, where's he going? Like, like Toronto has been spending money. He's bringing back some fears. I saw New York got Soto. Like, I just don't see it. So I feel like it's going to eventually come back. So I am kind of optimistic on it, but you wanted some tension so I'm going to try oh, to bring coming. some tension here. <laughs> I've been thinking about it a lot recently. And I, hey, Cody Bellinger comes back. I am going to be super happy. Cody Bellinger. But as somebody who last year wanted Cody Bellinger to be an extension while you guys were not really high on it because we had prospects coming up and I'm going to bring some tension. I'm almost at the point, And I know you're not going to be happy with what I'm about to say is I'm kind of feeling like I'm like, if I have to choose, I might be choosing Matt Chapman here uh, if uh, to get a guy Over to bring Cody. in. Over Cody, because you got Bush you can put first. You got PCA coming up in center. And, I, and hey, look, to me, you got – I love having too many guys. Like, I would bring multiple guys in, obviously. But I love having too many guys. I, I don't feel believe in, like, the blocked prospect necessarily. Like, sometimes there's a situation like what, what happened with Michael Bush. But then what happens? You trade him, you get, like, a, you get pieces back. So, like, I don't necessarily believe in all the blocked prospect stuff. But I'm looking at, like, Matt Chapman. He's got – I know he struggled a little bit with his numbers, but, like, his underlying stats are better. I just feel like he's going to perform better. He's got that great defense. They have this huge hole at third base right now. 
Like, what is their hole right now? Third base. Like, I don't think center field, and I don't think first base is as big of a hole right now as third base is. And, yeah, you have some guys that maybe in the future you might want to put there. But today, Matt Chapman, and then think of that defense. Dansby, Chapman, uh, Nico, like, I think is a stud. So, like, I'm almost kind of – I'm almost on the Matt Chapman train right now, and he might be cheaper, but we'll see. I think the Cubs will make a move, and I think it's going to be like whoever falls into their price range is the mm. guy that gets up. I just feel like it's most likely to be Cody because I also think he'll probably be the most comfortable coming back to the Cubs, but that's just how I'm thinking about it. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. I'm going to, you know, I'm in this middle too where I'm cautiously optimistic, but, you know, that only lasts until some other organization blinks in their steering match with Boris. I don't mean this like it sounds. I do think Scott Boris is the reason Bellinger is not a Cub yet because I think Boris is doing every bit of his job and trying to get an extra 5 million, 10 million out of some team for his client. And that is his job. I don't begrudge him that. I do think if it were a somewhat less obstinate representation for a player, I think Bellinger would have signed somewhere already. And Jeremy, like you said, he's Bellinger. I don't think is getting the 200 million that Boris and his carnival barking predicted that Bellinger would. I think with different representation, they probably would have picked a spot already for a fair price. And again, that's not a knock on Boris necessarily. It's just how he does business and that's fine. But I am, that's what I think would have happened already. Will it happen that way still? Possibly. Again, I'm trying to maintain some cautious optimism here. So here, I'm, here. I'm Go worried it. about Chapman. And, and I'll say that saying that I am mortified that we are staring down the barrel of year five of Patrick Wisdom as a Chicago Cub. <laughs> and I'm pessimistic that um, Morrell is going to be a major league third baseman. So there's a gaping hole as far as I'm concerned at third base, but you know, wrong side of 30, uh, Shaw sort of chipping at the block, potentially a guy we'll see before the end of the year at third base for the Cubs. Maybe 2025 is a more realistic destination for him. I don't know that I want Chapman coming to the north side here, uh, but that that's interesting, Jeremy, and I, I like that that's out there and that it's a possibility. Right, and, uh, you know, I just to me, I was just thinking about the other day, like, with Bellinger, like, Bellinger had the successful year last year with, you know, all the numbers looked good in terms of the, you know, the, the rate stats and his power, and you look at Chapman's, like, his numbers fell off. But then when you look at, like, you know, the, one of the reasons why Bellinger's kind of struggling is because all of his underlying numbers in terms of, like, exit velo and all those other things aren't as strong. And Matt Chapman, who's also kind of struggling, kind of funnily enough, is kind of the opposite. Like, he had strong underlying numbers, but he didn't have the top-line numbers like Bellinger had. And it's funny that both these guys who are kind of the opposite to what happened last year are both struggling. It's like you can make the argument to either of them, like you're not as good as you think you are and just be kind of two-faced about it. But I'm just like thinking like five years from now, if you're going to give a big contract to one of these guys, who do you think might be more likely to be the one that's producing? And I'm kind of feeling like it might be Matt Chapman because one, he has a stronger track record, I think, over the last couple of years. Cody Bellinger struggled. Yeah, he's younger, but he struggled. And the Cubs have that hole. And, like, yeah, you know, you could talk about Matt Shaw, and I agree with you. I, Matt Shaw, I think, is going to be a stud. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if he's going to be necessarily ready this year. He does have some questions about, like, his arm strength and playing on that side of the diamond. Obviously, we saw it with Madrigal. You can be effective doing that, which we were all If Madrigal, Madrigal can do it, Matt right. Shaw can so do you it. Can, Matt Shaw can do it. But, like, hey, Nico Horner's going to be – he's only got two – like, after this year, he's only got two years left on his deal. He's going to be gone. He, he could be gone unless they give him to an extension. So, like – I, I could see Matt Shaw taking over Nico Horner. Like it's a problem to have a good problem to have when you have too many guys. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. In my opinion, I think I'm going to make a prediction. I think they end up signing 
two Boris guys that are out there, I, I'm going to go two. I don't know if it's going to be Bellinger and Chapman or Bellinger. And I feel, still think Hoskins is a possibility. I, I know we talked about Bush, but I, I think one of the, I think they're going to sign Bellinger and I think they're going to sign another one. That's just my prediction. I'll be disappointed when they don't, but I, I don't know. And I'm also going to say, I'm going to push back a little bit on what Randall said. I think if Cody Bellinger wanted to sign, he would sign. And I think if he didn't want Scott Boris doing Scott Boris things, he wouldn't hire Scott Boris. I think this is what he wants. And that's eminently fair. Jeremy, you noticed it. You pointed it out last weekend is that Bellinger was the, the topic of conversation. They yes. might as well have held a panel on why isn't Cody Bellinger here? Dansby brought him up. Uh, Nico, I think, responded to a question about him. He he was the topic of conversation. So I don't think there's any question that his former and hopefully future teammates want him back, that the organization thinks very highly of him. It's like he was there with them staring off into the ether in that way that Cody Bellinger kind of does. And I will say that was one thing I thought was really weird about Cubs convention was how much they were almost pushing Cody Bellinger. Like the Cubs media was pushing him. Like the the tweets are coming out like, hey, listen to what Dansby Swanson. And like, I'm not saying the social media guy has any you know knowledge of what's going to happen because I don't think that. But it just was weird for a guy who's not on the team. But like give Jed Hoyer being like, hey, we're looking for a left-handed bat. And then like turning to yeah. all the fans being like, this is where you chant Cody. Like, it was just like a weird kind of like kind of like that's not something you expect to see. Like I saw a funny uh, uh, Simpsons meme about it, you know, where um, Homer is talking about Poochie and he's giving his ideas for Poochie. And he goes, when Poochie's not on the screen, all the other characters should be asking, where's Poochie? Well, that's like what it was with Cody Bellinger. Cody's not on the screen. Everybody else should be asking, where's Cody? And that's kind of how it was. So uh, it was just very weird to me that yeah. the Cubs were that open and upfront about like where's Cody some tension around Cody Bellinger yeah. tension being the theme here towards the end of the show before we break I'm going to carve out a couple of minutes for this um, I want to inject force if you will some tension into the show here so I want to put both of you on the spot what I want us to do before we break here is for each of your co-hosts so Jeremy I want you to give one towards me one towards Randall Randall you for Jeremy and me so on and so forth I want us to put out what we think is currently the worst take that our co-host harbors, particularly as it pertains to the Chicago Cubs. Okay. Um, I'm willing to go first. I've been thinking about this more. You guys probably want a minute to sort of let those thoughts percolate. So let me go first here. Randall, I'm putting you on the spot here first. I think the worst take that you currently harbor with regards to the Chicago Cubs is you do not enjoy the Cubs rivalries. You don't like Cubs Cardinals. You don't like Cubs Brewers. Me, there's nothing better than Cubs Cardinals. There's nothing better than a Friday 120 Wrigley Field Cubs Cardinals. That to me is everything. That's why I'm a baseball fan. That's as good as it gets. And Randall, I think you actively hate when the Cubs and the Cardinals play each other. You won't go down to St. Louis to see a Cubs game. You won't go to Milwaukee to see the Cubs play there. And to me, those are the best regular season games year in and year out. So I'll give you a chance to counter this if you think I'm misrepresenting you, if you think I'm being unfair. Randall, I think it's garbage that you don't like Cubs Cardinals. To that I say, I accept mosquitoes as part of the natural order. They exist and they fill a spot in the ecosystem. That does not mean I have to enjoy getting bitten by them. It does not mean I have to accept getting bitten by them. I accept the natural order. That does not mean I have to enjoy every part of the natural order. And that is my rebuttal to that. You think that's fair though, Jeremy? Like, I think it's, it's nonsense that you can't like Cubs Cardinals. That's the highlight of the year every year. 
I think it's fair. Like you have to have, you know, that, that rivalry, that kind of like, you have to have some, like in order to appreciate the high points, you have to have these, these obstacles that you go through. Right. So like, I, I think you need to have that. And yeah, sometimes it's going to suck and sometimes it's going to be great. So like, yeah. you got to appreciate that. You got to look forward to it. Like I look forward to a bears Packers game. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, I, I look forward to Cubs Cardinals. I look forward to going to the, the Cubs Brewers. And, and when you beat them, it makes it even all the more special. Yeah. And as you guys know, I live in Denver. The Rockies, a relatively young Major League Baseball organization, um, 30 years celebrating their team here this past year. They don't have a rival. Like they don't like the Dodgers. The Dodgers couldn't care less about the Colorado Rockies. I mean, they like coming to Denver and maybe getting to hang out in the mountains and things like that. But there's no real rivalry there. And it's one of the, the sort of sore spots of the Rockies here. There's no baseball team within 800 miles of Coors Field. So it's hard to have that regional rivalry. So Randall, I'm calling you out for that. I think that, that is uh, something you ought to fix here going into 2024. A little bit harder, Jeremy, uh, to identify one for oh, you. I'm because sure I've you got plenty. a million. Yeah, I've got yeah, a million, it's right? Harder. How do I Bull, pick one? Bullshit. So I was going to say, I'm sure you have plenty. <laughs> I hope I can articulate this in the way that it sort of makes sense in my head. Jeremy, I think you get so caught up on marginal value that you can't point out bad moves that the Cubs make. So I spent all last offseason where you're talking up the, the Drew Smiley contracts, the Trey Mancini contracts, you're defending Eric Hosmer to the Cubs because maybe in a theoretical universe, it's got more of a pulse than the other corpses the Cubs have rolled out at first base since Rizzo has left. But these are garbage deals, and I need my co-host to be able to point that out, that these are garbage contracts. So that's my knock on you right now, Jeremy. Uh, I don't think you do enough to point out the nonsense the Cubs do because you're all in on the marginal value. Yeah, you know, I well, obviously, you know, <laughs> many of those deals did not work out, although I, I was kind of the Hosmer ones like, OK, that didn't work out in a way I thought it was going to work out. I'm a little surprised about the Mancini one where he, like immediately upon playing, I was like, OK, this guy's we got a problem. <laughs> we got yeah, a problem like the first week of the season. I was like, all right, we got an issue. I, I didn't expect that one to hit it as hard as it did. But uh, yeah, I mean, you make some points. Obviously, it doesn't work out when they don't work out. You got to review and, and reevaluate like, well, why did I think this is going to work and why or and why did I think it was a good thing? I will point out that Jed Hoyer made those moves and we all respect Jed Hoyer. So it's <laughs> not like they came out of nowhere, but. I do think sometimes like when the Cubs, I, I want to be, I do think when the Cubs make a move that I think is garbage, I will call it out and say it's garbage. And yeah, but also sometimes like, man, I like to look at the, the optimistic side of things. Like I'm sure. always going to be biased a little bit towards the Cubs as much as I, I, I think, you know, whatever, I'm always going to be a little bit biased towards the Cubs and I'm always going to want a move to, even if it's a move I hate, I'm going to want it to work out, man. Yeah. But yeah, it's fair. I, I, I obviously, Hey, I, I think I joke about every year when we do our predictions, but like the last three years, I think I think I predicted like Jock Peterson, Clint Frazier, and Trey Mancini to lead the Cubs in homers, and none Oof. of those even came close. <laughs> so <laughs> next year I might just pick, you know, somebody like who's gonna be on the team for a long time, like you know, Christopher Morrell or something. So uh we'll we'll see what happens with Morrell, but somebody who's like more on the team. So we'll we'll see about that. Yeah. We're getting close to prediction time anyways. We get into spring training. We'll start to make our picks here for 24. Uh, any volunteers? Jeremy, Randall? I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. Uh, anyone? Yeah, Jeremy, take it. All right. Well, I guess I'll start off with uh, Randall a little bit. Uh, where where I think Randall, I, I think you get a little too prospect huggy because we were talking. I just think you, you fall <laughs> in love with that. Although I was surprised with some of the attitude towards that, your hub. But I think like you're a little too high on the Cubs guys, 
certain guys and you're a little too like there's some guys that maybe like in triple a that are like 26 that are you know doing okay and you're like why isn't this guy getting a shot and then you have michael bush who's 26 crushing the ball and you're like well he's a 4a player so like i feel like if they're in the Cubs <laughs> system you give them a little bit more of that and as i said we're all biased towards the cubs so we all want the cubs to be right but I, I, that's just my take a little a little prospect huggy a little bit on some guys uh randall go ahead you know, I, I I think this is a much more valid accusation than the previous one. I absolutely do get prospect huggy. Um, yeah, you know, I was sad to lose Jackson Ferris because I, I thought it would have been, I think it would have been neat to see them take a guy, a, a prep player that they identified as the second round swing and develop him all the way up to the majors. But I think that's fair. I think we all get a little prospect huggy a lot of the time. Um, so I think that's a very fair accusation. I will say that if the Cubs had a... 25-year-old PCL MVP who did not hit in his short MLB sample size, I probably would have been down a little bit on him too. Um, but uh, hey, that would be a, a good thing to test out in the near future if it if it comes out. But you know what? I think your accusation is fair. I do get prospect huggy on occasion. All right, bring it. All right, here we go. I'm ready. <laughs> I think that sometimes, and I, I, we, it's another thing we've kind of talked about in the past, but I think you are, uh, sometimes you're a little too overly caught up on Tom Ricketts as Me? being the evil oh. villain. Yeah, yes. To you, I'm talking about you being the evil villain. When we have a, a, a general manager who this weekend came out and when people were trying to critique him, saying he's uh, has a small market mindset, he's like, damn right, I have a small market mindset. I want to be a small guy. And I think sometimes you think if you, you criticize things as the well, Cubs aren't willing to spend money when it's really Jed Hoyer is just kind of trying to make whatever best deal and he's thinking it where there's probably a budget where I'm not going to say the Cubs are hard, like not the Cardinals, the wrong team, the Yankees, the Dodgers, whatever. But like, I think they'd probably have a budget this year to go 230, 240 million. And Jed Hoyer is the guy sitting there being like, I don't want to spend until I get the perfect deal. Like mm. that's, that's, I, I, so I think, I think Look, you need to be a little bit more critical of Jed sometimes and not just always on Tom for not wanting to spend. Cause I think a lot of it, maybe Jed doesn't want to spend too. That's fair. I always go to the top. The guy that sets the budget is the guy that I'm going to have the target on. I'll say this though. The Cubs have never issued a $200 million contract. I don't think it's because Jed doesn't want to. I don't know that he necessarily has the green light for it. Um, the, if you look at the 30 largest contracts in Major League Baseball history, the Cubs have not issued one of them. You got the common teams on there, the Yankees, you got the Phillies, you got the Dodgers, all that. But you've got the Rockies. You've got the Tampa Bay Devil Rays. You've got the uh, uh, Cincinnati Reds. Like, how do the Cubs not have a $200 million contract by 2024? To me, that's on ownership, but I hear you. I'm always going to be critical of Tom Ricketts, and that's the guy I'm going to chip at first. No, yeah, I, obviously the guy at the top is the guy that's responsible for everything. But I, I just will point out that Jason Hayward had a $184 million contract mm -hmm. with two opt-outs, which is pretty valuable. And when that was signed, that was pretty high up. And I don't think it's coincidence that Theo Epstein was out here being the guy, the wild guy making all these signings. And then when he went away and Jed Hoyer came, I do think there was a little bit like, and then maybe it was Tom Ricketts too, like being like, Hey Jed, you're my guy because I know you're going to be a little bit more conservative in your spending. So there, yeah, I'm just saying. I I think sometimes they're baseball moves, and Jed Hoare is like, I'm just going to make like, if there's a 200 million, I mean, he, this guy himself, it comes out and says like, I don't want to sign 10 year deals. Yeah. Like he that, he says that to you. So I don't know. That's just my that's just my my take. So that those yeah. are my two takes. 
and I will I will concede this too. Two of those teams that I just named there, the Rockies did not see that contract at completion. Of course, he ended up in St. Louis where he's their third baseman. Don't really want to talk about what's going on with the Rays and their big uh, uh, contract that they gave out because that did not end well in Tampa Bay and it's getting worse and worse as those headlines continue to roll in. So, you know, it's not a guarantee. You give out a 200 or yeah. whatever million dollar contract, it's going to work out. Um, certainly not the case right now in the Bay in Florida. Randall, bring us home. Randall, with this. come what do you on. Got for All right, so I'm, I'm going to preface this by saying I'm still working on one for Jeremy because I generally find Jeremy pretty agreeable. What yeah. I do not always find agreeable is our co-host Ronan. Uh, Ronan, I think you are far too quick to react over the course of the offseason sometimes. I think you are far too willing to say, uh, maybe right after Thanksgiving, that the Cubs are not going to, and I quote, do shit <laughs> this offseason, um, when that is verifiably often not the case. Uh, I think you kind of like being that negative devil's advocate, the one who said the Cubs aren't going to do anything, the Cubs are bleeped, uh, any number of other things. So I think you're a little too willing to lean into that sometimes, even if it is more of kind of a devil's advocate thing than something you necessarily believe. And Jeremy, man, your hats are kind of dirty sometimes. That's what I My got hats for always you. Dirty. That's, oh, part of, that's part of the gig, man. I'm like, you remember the, the you probably don't remember because you hate the Cardinals. You remember the Cardinals pitcher, Steve Klein? That's my idol, man. I do. You know, I remember his hat. That was a very dirty hat. Uh, yeah. I love the dirty hat. Well, I like some tension here. I like the fact that we get into that. Um, it's good. It's good for the show. I think it's good for listeners, too. You know, I want everybody just agreeing with each other and everything. Need tension. Um, yeah. And we don't have to go the route of, like, ESPN, where you just make stuff <laughs> yeah. up just, just for the other. sake of argument. But it's a good idea sometimes to throw in some dissenting thoughts. And even if they are to get shot down, it's nice to sort of put that idea out there. Um, we're short on time here. Let's push this to next week. White Sox in the news here potentially moving to the south loop that 78 site i got a ton of thoughts on it so let's save that for next week where we got a little bit more time to get into it and more news on that breaks um one thing though that did break today that randall wanted to talk on sports illustrated uh laying off their entire staff today this one bugged you randall you know a little bit sports illustrated i think maybe for the two of you a little more so than me but i think there was a very long period of time where sports illustrated was one of these standards as far as sports reporting, long form reporting, and what was going on in the world of sports. That has not been the case for quite a while now, but today really felt like the final nail in that coffin. Of course, anytime the Cubs have done anything in the past five or six decades, they have covered Sports Illustrated at the time, uh, especially 2016, um, 2007, 2008, any playoff year, you could be guaranteed the Cubs would appear on the cover of Sports Illustrated at least once. It's just a little sad to see another institution that was already very much on the way out but it feels like it is all the way dead at this point and that's just unfortunate i totally agree with you um two things that come to mind for me one something sports illustrated did really well and keep in mind it launched in the 1950s so post-world war ii this was in an era when radio had still surpassed television in terms of advertising revenue in the united states what i think about a lot i talk about my students with this in class too is imagine in the 1950s getting Sports Illustrated at a time where if you were fortunate to have a TV, it would have been in black and white, and you open up that magazine, and they always had the first couple of pages of that magazine was full two-page color spreads of photographs. Imagine seeing Yankee Stadium or Wrigley Field or Lambeau or Fenway in 1955 when you got that magazine, when if you had a TV, it was in black and white. I mean, that must have been 
mind-boggling for people in the 1950s and the 1960s before color television was mainstream here in the United States. So to me, that's a loss. Photojournalism is something I still love. I work for Getty Images, right? I've got a lot of value towards good sports photojournalism, and Sports Illustrated really pushed that in an era when magazines were relevant. The other thing, though, that bugs me is we are moving more and more towards an era of team-owned media or corporate-owned media that's in bed with the leagues that they're covering. We're talking about ESPN, the NFL Network, and the NFL officially coming further together, and they already have a multi-billion dollar partnership year in and year out. I worry about the future of journalism when independent journalists do not have a publication. When people turn on marquee for Cubs coverage, it's like Bruce Levine talking about a great Cubs prospect means nothing to me. He's on payroll of Marquee. He's getting paid from Tom Ricketts, just like the players are. I worry about that because journalists, like in the purest form, should be holding those in power accountable. And now you lose Sports Illustrated. It's like, what do people want? But in that same vein, I ask my students this every semester, when you are turning to an outlet to cover your team, so here in Denver, the Nuggets, the Abs, whoever, do you want the journalists covering your team to be fans of the team or do you want them to be impartial? And overwhelmingly, students that I have, so college students right now, they want them to be fans of the team. They like altitude coverage. They like DNVR or CHGO. Boy, a hardcore journalist would cringe at that notion because those are content creators, not journalists. So I'm worried. That has me worried about like who's going to hold owners accountable if every media member in the building works for the team or works for a media partner that's in bed with that league. That's very concerning to me, and it, it's sad what's happened to Sports Illustrated. Well, that's what we're for. We'll hold we'll hold ownership accountable. Yeah, that's uh, the thing. I mean, it's like you want somebody covering the Cubs that's not on the Cubs payroll, right? right. And, and and like as much as I bitch about guys like Paul Sullivan, at least, you know, you got a guy there who will ask Tom Ricketts something that may piss him off. You're not going to get that from anybody at Marquee. If they do that, they get fired. Look at like, like Rosenthal gets fired from MLB Network because he publishes articles in The Athletic critical of the commissioner of baseball during the pandemic. This is the era we're going to where the only people that cover the teams work for the team. Yikes. I don't like the optics of that at all. No, I agree with you. And it's actually almost surprising, you know, like the fact that the Cubs were owned by the Tribune company for so long and they were able to keep that wall up between the Tribune mm -hmm. publishing uh, Tribune newspapers and and the Cubs. But, yeah, I, as a Sports Illustrated, just in general, uh, back to the topic of Sports Illustrated, I, I was a huge fan. I, I have subscriptions. I'm, one of my favorite covers is the one. I think prior to 2004 with uh, Kerry Wood and, and, and Mark Pryor holding a uh, flaming baseballs, you know, and it's like. Oh man, like I really thought that team was gonna be so great, but you know, I have a framed one of the 2016 when they won the World Series, so uh, it's very sad to see them laying off their entire staff. And who knows what's, what's gonna happen next? They're you know saying they'll probably still license the name Sports Illustrated, but it was probably already killed off, you know, a couple years it's ago. Zombie, zombie Sports yeah. Illustrated, so you know, AI, but uh, I agree with you, Ronan. Yeah. Like, they're, they're Sports Illustrated has a strong history of extremely, you know. They, the reason they were so good is because they had such great writers. They had so many great writers have written for Sports Illustrated, and they were able to uh, write uh, compelling stories. Um, some stories, you know, 
were stories that broke major news and some were just like profile stories, but like they had so many compelling stories. So I agree with you. Somebody needs to hold people accountable. There has to be an independent uh, news media. And hey, you mentioned uh, uh, Paul Sullivan. It's to me, it's sad that Gordon Whitmire is gone <laughs> since then. Right. He's, still, he's still critiquing the Cubs. Like, yeah, he used to kind of always annoy me, but I would always like smirk or kind of laugh when I heard a question by Whitmire at a press conference because like it's a question that like hey it's kind of a reasonable question and you should probably be answering for it like the other day I was watching uh, Ryan Pohl's press conference and Mark Potash just kept going at Ryan Pohl's being like why did you not see that CJ Stroud was gonna be a stud and I was like you know what that's completely right Mark Potash why are we trusting his evaluation of quarterbacks if he didn't see CJ Stroud was gonna be a stud like he said last year he had to be blown away to get a a quarterback and I'm like you know these are types of questions that need to be answered uh and somebody needs to hold the feet to the fire and and I I I think it's it's reasonable to ask these questions so I agree with you 100% and uh, the fact that you said like so many of your students want people to be fans of the team, it's like, yeah. come on. Like, I, I don't want to be critical of anybody, but I listen to a couple of the C, so CHGO. I don't listen to Cubs one, but I think they all do good work. But like, sometimes I listen to certain podcasts and like the quote unquote beat reporters just kind of like uncritically giving information that the team is, says. And it's like, this is what you know, they said, and so this is what it is. And this is it. And I'm like, that's not like, just because they say something like a certain organizations, especially in this town are so full of it. Just because they say something doesn't mean that's the way it is. Like, yeah. oh, and I'm like, come on, like push back a little bit. Yeah. Well, you know, there was a huge scandal that hit ESPN in the last couple of years, Adam Schefter, who's the top of the NFL food chain at, at ESPN, writing an article about a labor dispute between the owners and the players union, giving his entire article to the owner in Washington at the time when they were the Redskins, that, that organization, and saying, does this look right? I'm going to publish it at 6 a.m. tomorrow. Any self-respecting journalism outlet would have fired him on the spot for that, especially when you've got a labor dispute where it's owners versus players. He gives the article to the ownership group, asks them for corrections, and then publishes it the next day. This breaks, nothing happens to him. Like, ESPN isn't a reputable outlet to cover the NFL. Like I said, they've got a multi-billion dollar broadcast revenue sharing partnership with the NFL. Their top reporter is committing journalistic fraud and getting away with it without being in trouble. Who can you turn to, right? Who's going to hold these people accountable? What's going to look like in the next decade? That makes me worried because to your point a minute ago, Jeremy, I don't like owners of baseball teams and football teams. I think these are crappy people. And there was an era where journalists would hold these people accountable. And I think those days are behind us. Schefter is just tragic. It has the the smell of everything he says was written by uh, a team owner or was written by a, a player representation when a guy gets uh, released. He talked about how he has fresh legs and can help a playoff team. It's unfortunate. It's painful. He used to be the top NFL reporter. And like you said, now it's a question of who's writing his information for him because yeah. I don't think it's him half the time. Well, he trades scoops like that came that's come out that he 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 trades scoops like he'll get a scoop about something that happened on another team and in order to get a scoop for a, a different team. Like if he finds out somebody's hurt, he'll like tell a different team that, oh, by the way, this guy's hurt. What do you have? Like, and like, that's kind of, you know, crappy. Like he's going around, like trading these scoops, giving them to other information teams, but like, which I'm sure is actually pretty common, but whatever. Um, yeah. All, all inside kind of access journalism is, you know, whatever. And, and as we saw this past off season with the, or excuse me, with major league baseball, like most of these guys don't know anything unless they're being fed direct lines by agents. That's 95% of it.
I have said that, by the way, and you have said, well, Randall, they're not making it up entirely. No, I, I think we can. I think I, we can well, they're say, not making it up entirely. They're being fed by agents. I'm not saying they don't know. I'm just yeah. saying outside of being fed by agents. Just curious if Shohei Otani's private plane has landed in Toronto yet. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I back to the original thought there, I'm a little bit bummed at the current state of Sports Illustrated. The warning signs have been there for ages when they had uh, AI published articles going up under the Sports Illustrated brand in the last couple of weeks. It's like, what the hell is going on here? Is this really the direction it's going? Um, yes, this is the direction that it's going, and we'll see how things change. But ESPN is a sports gambling company as much as anything else right now. So we're living in weird times as these mega sports media companies are dipping their toes in a lot of things that have nothing to do with journalism. Um, but yeah, next week, we'll talk a little bit about the White Sox, the South Loop. I got a ton of thoughts on it on that site. And wow, what would that do for the city of Chicago? What would that do for the Cubs, too, if the Chicago White Sox actually had a ballpark with unequivocally the best view in baseball with that skyline just beyond the outfield fence? Um, could it be good or bad for the Cubs? I want to get into that a little bit as well. Um, and maybe the Cubs sign Cody Bellinger between now and next week. Uh, if anything breaks that's significant, we'll be on it. Um, otherwise, about a week or so out, we'll come back and do this again. Gentlemen, Happy New Year. Good to see you both here in 2024. And uh, let's get this ready to go just a couple weeks out from spring training. Uh, we'll be back. See you guys.